From the perspective of the past, what we can see is that although this is our world and we are very tightly connected to it, worlds can vanish in an instant. And although the patterns of life remain the same, an individual ecosystem can be incredibly fragile. Welcome to When We Talk About Animals, a Yale University podcast. I'm Jennifer Skeen. And I'm Viveka Morris. During this moment of the Anthropocene, when human heft is being written into the geologic record and transforming our climate, it can be easy to forget life's long history or to see humanity as an inevitable denouement for life on Earth. Yet to take a peek into deep time is to see that whole other worlds came before our own, and that the trajectory of life on this planet to the human-dominated world of today was anything but predictable or guaranteed. Prior to this were hundreds of millions of years of life in astonishing forms and relationships, and landscapes where the life forms we take for granted today, from mammals and birds to grasses and trees, were at most glimmers of potential. These ancient worlds are now memorialized in the Earth's crust, recorded in fossils and echoed in today's species and ecosystems. In his magnificent new book, Other Lands, A Journey Through Earth's Extinct Worlds, our guest, Dr. Thomas Halliday, uses cutting-edge science to paint sweeping, vivid portraits of 16 fossil sites extending back 550 million years, bringing these long-lost landscapes and their inhabitants once again back to life. The half-a-billion-years-long story of multicellular life on Earth that Halliday tells is one of adaptability, impermanence, and rebirth, with marvelous casts of animals, plants, and fungi that grace and shape Earth's ever-changing geology. Halliday is reader's David Attenborough-style guide through deep time, bringing the sights, sounds, creatures, and unfolding ecological dramas of extinct worlds to life. In the relatively recent past of the Pleistocene, just a few tens of thousands of years ago, Halliday describes how wild horses, lions, caribou, and elephants grazed, hunted, and were hunted in the thawing plains of modern-day Alaska. Traveling backwards further, he reveals even more astounding otherworldly landscapes, ones where unlikely oceanic migrations of monkeys and other African animals colonize South America, where giant penguins the size of humans congregate on a much warmer Antarctica, where reptiles soar in skies otherwise populated only by insects in a time before birds and their songs where silent scaly tree forests grow, and, in the final chapter, where multicellular life emerges from the banding together of single cells in oxygen-deprived seas. In Rewinding the Planet as We Know It, Dr. Halliday makes the commonplace, the feathered and furred, the scaly and chitinous, the photosynthetic and seeded, miraculous. In the process, he offers profound lessons for us today in the age of climate change, as atmospheric carbon increases at a rate not seen since the sweltering Permian, and as species declines herald a sixth mass extinction. As humanity transforms the planet, Halliday writes that the fossil record acts as both a memorial to life's spectacular possibilities and as a warning about how fast dominance can become forgotten history. Halliday is a Scottish paleontologist and evolutionary biologist whose research investigates long-term patterns in the fossil record, particularly in mammals. We're absolutely thrilled to speak with him today. Dr. Halliday, welcome. Hello, thank you for having me. 
This book is just astounding in its scope, covering basically the entirety of, of the sweep of multicellular life on Earth. What made you want to take this project on? I think it, I mean, it came from a, a sort of a, almost a selfish wish, really, to be honest. Um, I mean, people often ask me as a paleontologist where I would go if I had a time machine. What would you go and see? And um, I thought a lot of uh, books are out there about paleontology um, that deal with groups of organisms, but none really sort of deal with the sense of place and because I wasn't able to read about it in someone else's, I, I wanted to write about it. And so the first chapters that I wrote were um, the uh, the one that is set in the Paleocene, just um, 66 million years ago in the aftermath of the last mass extinction, uh, where we go back to the, uh, the world that's recovering from that uh, extinction event that wiped out uh, non-bird dinosaurs and a whole swathe of other animals. Uh, and I'd want to visit there because that's the period of time that I've studied most in my research. And you know, there's a sort of a lingering sense that if only I could go back and actually get some DNA from some of these creatures, I'd be able to solve a huge number of problems that um, we have <laughs> as paleontologists when reconstructing what happens to mammals at this time. And the other um, site that I really wanted to visit was at the end of the Miocene, it, the Mediterranean gets cut off from the Atlantic because of tectonic movement. Africa is slowly pushing up towards Europe. And as it's cut off, the evaporation of the water from the Mediterranean Sea happens faster than it can be replenished by rain and rivers. And so the Mediterranean Sea dried up into this kilometres deep salt pan and eventually gets refilled by a huge sort of sluice weir in the, in, in the western half and an enormous waterfall in the eastern half. And uh, just to see sites like that, that's really, I think, the, the, the motivating factor behind wanting to write this book. You talk about seeing sites like that, but it's, it's very obvious in the book. And I think one of the incredible wonders of this book is that you make it possible for the reader to see it at all. And that this is evidence that you and you know many other scientists, many scientists that have come before you write over the past 200 years or so have gained from clues in the fossil record and, and interpreting both about particular individual creatures that are found in that record and characteristics of the ecosystem as a whole. What does science look like today in terms of translating that fossil record into these extraordinarily vivid images of both place and, and individual animals that you write in the book? Yeah, we, we talk in um, paleontology about having had uh, the paleobiological revolution over the uh, which started, I guess, almost fifty years ago now in the in the in the seventies and then into the eighties, where paleontology went from being this sort of largely collector-based science where um, it was sort of documenting what was in the past. It's the sort of classic example of, you know, the all sciences physics or stamp collecting, or paleontology certainly sort of was stamp collecting back in the day. But advances in, in, in technology and adopting ecological methods and just sort of moving into a, a more biological realm and trying to see the past as, as life has meant that we've been able to uh, extract a whole lot more detail. So I think probably the biggest revolution that's happened in paleontology um, is the, the advent of CT scanning, um, because it's allowed us to actually see what's going on inside a lot of these fossils. Uh, and you can get structures of the brain and, and of, you know, within a skull, or we can look at um, subcellular 
uh, level data sometimes um, when we begin to look inside the fossils. And that could be done before, but only by, you know, sequentially grinding the fossil until eventually you don't have a fossil left, but you have, um, you know, you've taken a, a photograph of each layer and grind away another tenth of a millimeter and then take another photo. So, you know, CT scans and the ability to manipulate the, the data that they produce in, in, in more powerful computers has meant that we get a really good picture of what happens in the past. And it's meant that we can actually look inside better quality fossils, because obviously if sampling a fossil means you're going to destroy it, you don't want to put your best stuff under that technique. <laughs> But also advances in uh, computing powers allowed us to reconstruct the relationships of organisms over, you know, far more accurately, introducing more morphological characters, testing the relationships of more organisms. Um, you know, the, the, the combinations, mathematical combinations that you can get from even about 30, 40 species is just astronomical. My PhD dealt with trying to work out the relationships among nearly 200 organisms and the number of possible arrangements that you could make out of that is greater than the number of hydrogen atoms in the universe, right? So we need these powerful computers and, 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 and fancy mathematical algorithms to actually address these questions. So you know, paleontology is very much a modern, a modern science these days. That's really incredible. And the, the innovations have just been mind-boggling and the way that you leverage those to to great effect in this book are really incredible you know of course um, most of as you point out in the book most of what we have is sort of markers of the death of these organisms in in the fossils uh, we do have activity imprints but the way that you've brought the landscapes back to life leveraging these new technologies of the relationships and, and correlations between the species is, is really amazing and, and on that, that creation of these worlds, one thing I, I really love about the book is the way that you sort of deconstruct evolutionary progress by actually telling the story backwards. Each, each chapter moves further and further back in time. And not only does it really gradually immerse the reader in increasingly foreign worlds, it really disrupts this notion of, of progress and evolution of some sort of inevitable or predefined plan, breaking life down really into its constituent parts and allowing us to better see the threads that have come and gone and those, of, of course, that have been with us for a very, very long time. Was that always the plan for this book? At what point did you decide to pursue this as a reverse chronology? And what was your thinking behind that? It, it was always going to be backwards. Uh, the, the the reason um, I wanted to do that was actually the first one that you mentioned there in that um, I wanted to start with somewhere relatively familiar. So beginning with 20,000 years ago in the Pleistocene of the North Slope of Alaska, that means that we're with creatures that essentially the public at large are typically quite familiar with. You know, we've got woolly mammoths and we've got relatives of lions and we've got short-faced bears, which are, you know, they are, they are large versions of they're not too dissimilar from bears that we have today. So you don't have to do a, a huge amount of work getting people to understand what we're even looking at while sort of beginning to get a sense of what the book is going to be like, right? So as a reader, you can, you're sort of dipping the toe into familiar waters and being introduced to a few basic ecological terms. You know, and there I talk about what an ecosystem is and what a biome is and um, you know, all, all of the key jargon that you're going to need in order to um, understand what comes later. And then, uh, yeah, as we go backwards, it gets more and more unfamiliar and the continents move around. And uh, so the geography is is increasingly unfamiliar. 
until we're back at a world where everything's in shallow seas and uh, scarcely resembles modern animals at all. I found the book surprisingly emotional to read, and I think a major reason for that is that you're very careful as you paint these past worlds, at least it seems as a reader, to ensure that the prehistoric animals are seen as animals. You write in the introduction that often these extinct creatures are framed as villainous monsters with insatiable appetites, I believe you put it, and that you very intentionally did not want to portray them in this mindless, barbaric, cruel way. Why was that so important to you? Well, paleontology has a very, very long history of being a, a reasonably popular science, right? So even back in the early 19th century, when we uh, were barely scratching the surface of understanding what past life was, you know, extinction had only recently been accepted as a, a, as a phenomenon. And it's before we understand natural selection, right? There are still shows going on um, where people are exhibiting fossils that they found. And these are typically you know, mammoths and mastodons and giant sloths and so on. Even back then, the way they draw in the crowds is by emphasizing some kind of, you know, anti-diluvian, monstrous, barbaric world. And it's very crowd-pleasing, but it's not really what life is like. And the, these were real organisms that existed in ecosystems that worked with the same kind of rules that ecosystems follow today. I mean, there aren't really laws as such in biology. Every attempt at writing a law, you find an exception almost immediately. But there are patterns that emerge time after time. And the ecosystems that existed in the past followed essentially the same patterns that we can we can recognize today. And there's, you know, there's no reason to suspect that creatures that lived in the past were any more violent or brutish than anything that exists today. It's just, uh, yeah, not a realistic approach. But it's one that has a very long history uh, of representation in the field from those original Victorian uh, and indeed before um, sort of showman geologists. Uh, through things like Disney's Fantasia, where you've got T-Rex fighting a stegosaurus, and then you go, you know, and the Ray Harryhausen B-movies, where, uh, you know, you've got all sorts of, uh, you know, lost world type creatures attacking humans that find them, all the way through to Jurassic Park and, and, and beyond. It's a... Uh, it's become a bit of a trope of uh, dinosaurs as mindless killers and, and sort of fossil creatures as a whole by extension. Well, and to that notion of images of the, the T-Rex fighting the, the Stegosaurus, it also seems like the past in many ways has been compressed and sort of is just this monolithic entity of things that came before. And I love the way that you, you break that down and show just how much time elapsed between these, these different beings and, and how, how long they, they roamed on the earth. Sure. I mean, yeah, I mean, Stegosaurus and T-Rex is sort of the perfect example, really. It's almost a cliche amongst uh, paleontologists to point out that uh, T-Rex in time is closer to today than it was to the time when Stegosaurus was around. Stegosaurus is a Jurassic dinosaur that uh, is from the Morrison Formation in, in sort of Western uh, North America. And T-Rex is from a very similar part of North America, but from a considerably more recent uh, formation. So yes, uh, it's 66 million years since Tyrannosaurus rex roamed the earth and uh, more like 150 million years since Stegosaurus was around. That's so mind-boggling. Really amazing. I, I, w I would love to dive into some of the the worlds that you paint in the book. Um, and I had so many favorite chapters that it's hard to to pick and choose. So I think we'll, we'll cover a couple. But one of my favorite chapters 
was throughout the book, we see the rise and fall of different phyla and classes as, as changing climates and, and geographies and, and ecological dynamics alter the winners and losers of evolutionary history. But I love the, the chapter in, in South America um, in the Oligocene before South and North America joined um, how you describe these unique mammals like pouched carnivores, uh, what were called the South American native ungulates or sanus, and eventually the northern species sort of won out and there's there's not too much left of the South American species. What was this this period like? What were the sanus and can you describe the species found in South America during this time? Sure, yeah. Um, South America is or has been for much of the last um, 66 million years uh, has been an island continent. It's only uh, relatively recently that the Panama Isthmus uh, rose and connected North and South America. And when that happens, you get this thing called the Great American Interchange. And you get animals that had evolved in um, South America and animals that had evolved in North America cross over this new land bridge, right? And so this is something that happened about two and a half to three million years ago. But before this time, which includes uh, the Oligocene, South America was home to a whole swathe of, of native mammals whose descendants don't exist today. So some of, some of the South American native mammals are still around. There's a group known as the Xenarthrans, which uh, includes sloths and anteaters and armadillos. And of course, of those, armadillos have made their way quite successfully into um, a lot of North America. And indeed, some giant ground sloths as well made it into North America, although they're no longer there today. But alongside these, I mean, South America has its own uh, native uh, marsupial fauna, right? We think of marsupials as being a, an Australian phenomenon, really. But um, possums are from South America as well. And that includes the, the, the sort of well-known North American opossum, which is another migrant up into North America. But it also includes animals like the Manito del Monte, which is this beautiful little mouse-sized tree climbing marsupial that lives in you know tiny little soft moss ball nests in, in in the Valdivian rainforest today uh, in Chile and uh, th these are more closely related to um, Australian forms than to South American forms there's uh, over a lot of the last um, while there's been sort of connectivity between South America and Australia over Antarctica before Antarctica was completely covered in ice um, but also, uh, as well as all of these possum-like marsupials, there were animals like Thylacosmilus, which is a marsupial saber-tooth. So it's um, convergently evolved with the more famous saber-toothed cat Smilodon, which is known from uh, Rancho La Brea and places like that. But it's a, with a very sort of similar cat-like long saber-teeth ecology, but um, it's a pouched animal and it's you know, it has evolved from a completely different lineage. Marsupials, Xenarthrans, and finally Sanus are really the sort of mammal diversity. And Sanus are a funny group, really, because we don't really know where they fit. The reason that they have this horrible name of South American native ungulates is because we haven't really got a good description for what their closest living relatives are. They're all extinct, and there are about four or five orders of them, order in the, in the, in the Linnaean sense, and for two of them, they survived until recently enough that we can get some collagen sequences from subfossil material. And it seems that their closest living relatives are a group called Perissodactyls, which are their modern horses, rhinos and tapirs. Uh, but for the other three orders, we don't know whether they are also closely related to the other, other Sanus or whether they are an, a completely independent type of 
mammal. But in general, they're, they're sort of large herbivorous creatures, um, analogous to uh, the modern hoofed mammals from antelopes to camels to horses. They share very similar ecologies to those. That's really incredible. And this this period, one other thing I loved about this chapter that made it so memorable for me was that it was characterized by migrations, some of them very improbable. You write that every monkey in the Amazonian rainforest descended from a few monkeys who made a transatlantic voyage from Africa to South America. You know, Even though the Atlantic was much smaller then, that's still a very remarkably unlikely journey. How did that happen? Well, it, it's one of the most extraordinary uh, implications of the fossil record, right? So for, for a long time, people thought that um, there must be the, the American monkeys and the African and Eurasian monkeys uh, must have been separated by the by the movement of tectonic plates, but um, those plates separated long before the the monkey groups speciated and diverged. So we know they must have made their way across the ocean at some point when it was a wide ocean. And the best mechanism that um, we can use to explain this is that um, from time to time, in big rivers like the Congo, um, you get storms and uh, large chunks of vegetation detach from the bank and begin to float down the river. And these can be pretty well held together by the roots of trees. The trees can remain upright. You can, If you look for videos of this kind of thing, you can find rafts of vegetation that are you know, pretty coherent floating down uh, large rivers after storms. And as these rivers expel all the water and these rafts into the sea, it it seems that monkeys, it, all of the monkeys of South America, seem to have descended from a group that happened to be trapped on one of these rafts, which then made its way uh, across the Atlantic Ocean. But it's not just monkeys, right? This is something that appears to have happened quite a lot. All of the rodents of South America as well, you know, the guinea pigs and capybaras and agoutis, all of those, they descend from an African rodent group and appear to have rafted across in, in the same way. We even have some evidence of... Um, of freshwater fish and of amphibians who live in the Americas, but they have their closest relatives in Africa and in Eurasia. So it's a sort of remarkable long-distance dispersal. But of course, what we're talking about is millions of years of opportunity for that to happen. And I think the remarkable thing is just that it seems to have been uh, successful so many times. You know, enough enough uh, individuals making it across at once in order to, you know, to, to have a viable population. It becomes clear in the book, too, how much the, not just the animals, but the, the climate has changed over the course of these 550 mm. million years, which, of course, is a key topic we're all thinking about now. Um, as, a, as a sort of the next hop backwards in time on the journey, after telling the incredible story, there are so many where I felt the need to read it aloud to everyone around me, but the, the monkeys on the, on the rafts made of reeds going to South America was certainly one of them, as were the six and a half foot tall penguins in the next, in the next hop, which you describe as, as being, this is 41 million years ago from present, the last time in history of the earth that carbon dioxide levels were higher than they're predicted to be in the coming decades. What was that world like? 
Yeah, the Earth kind of has two stable states, and right now we are in uh, and the ice house state. We are, from a technical perspective, even so, there's a common idea of, of of ice age being the the last glacial maximum. But from a geological perspective, the the term ice age just refers to any period when there's permanent ice at the poles, as there is now, and. There have been periods in Earth's history when there has not been a permanent ice sheet at the poles. And uh, the last time that we shifted from an ice-free world, a greenhouse world, into an icehouse world um, was uh, during the Oligocene. And so before that, we have this uh, very warm period of Earth history, and it's known as the Eocene. And in the Eocene, Antarctica was uh, not covered in ice. It was not even... um, you know, particularly sparsely vegetated. The evidence that we have from the West Antarctic Peninsula, which is that long, thin bit of Antarctica that stretches out towards South America, is of a world of, uh, of temperate rainforests, dominated by Araucarian conifers. Now, the most sort of famous Araucarian conifer is the one that we call the monkey puzzle, the Chilean pine, and also Nothophagus, which is a, a type of tree, the common name is the Southern Beech. And while I'm not so familiar with North American um, flora, I mean, we have, a, we have a tree we call the beech tree in, 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 uh, in the we, UK. We do too. <laughs> you do. Okay, good. Because I had a conversation recently with, um, with a North American to discover that yew trees don't exist in North America, and I was shocked. Really? <laughs> we have yew, maybe they're not native. But they're definitely yew trees. All right. Well, whoever that was was not uh, familiar with them. <laughs> um, but yes, uh, anyway, uh, yes, Nothophagus is, is the southern beach. And so although we have beaches in the northern hemisphere, it's not, it's not a close relative of those, but it does something that uh, our beach trees also do, which is mast. Uh, all of the Nothophagus in a community, in an area, set seed at the same time. And they do it in such quantities that any seed-eating animal is just going to be overwhelmed by the sheer quantity. And some of those seeds will settle down and grow again. So th- this is really, you know, an ancient forest, a sort of thriving, tumble-down uh, forest with plants growing all over the surface of other plants. It's, you know, buffeted by rain systems coming in from the west, which means that there's so much moisture in the air that you get all of these epiphytes, all of these plants that um, grow not in the soil itself, but sort of create a surface for themselves to grow on, on other plants, lianas and and so on. And in this temperate rainforest, uh, we find some sanus, you know, these are Antarctic South American native ungulates, but we also find we also find some of the earliest uh, relatives of penguins, which is which you alluded to before, which are these giant uh, human-sized penguins, <laughs> um, and uh, they're fairly distantly related to the penguins that we have today, and existed for you know, several millions of years before uh, ultimately going extinct. But it, yes, it's a world which is extremely um, extremely warm, uh, and the greatest difference in temperature is really at the uh, the high latitudes at the poles, the sea surface temperatures um, would have been you know sort of a, a balmy, you know thirty degrees easily in the in the tropics. But this is Antarctica's not it's not hot at this time, but it's considerably hotter than it is today. But what what what's um, I I find amazing about it is of course despite the fact that you've got this huge rainforest growing, the way that the Earth orbits the sun hasn't changed, right? So it's still going to be dark solidly for three months of the year and then and light solidly for sort of about three months of the year and then have the sort of the period where there is night and day. But, you know, it, it, is, it, it still fulfills the patterns that we think about for polar uh, 
ecosystems, except that it's able to support these this you know, huge thriving plant community and the animals that live on it. Of course, this period came just after the, the Paleocene, around 66 million years ago, which is in the, the next chapter of your book. Um, and this was a chapter I, I love for many reasons, not least of which because it led me down a very delightful rabbit hole of learning about how pervasive Tolkien lore is in fossil nomenclature with species like the Erendial and Domiel and, and other Sindarin names. But this, this was an era of, of, of new beginnings following the meteor that resulted in the mass extinction of the dinosaurs and the rise of, of um, uh, mammals, which I know you've focused on in your own work. What was this period like and what happened in this time that, if, if you'll forgive the pun, allowed for such a, a meteoric rise of, of the mammals? <laughs> uh, yeah, um, it's, so it's the most recent of the uh, five major mass extinction events that happened at the end of the Cretaceous and sort of ushered in the Paleocene. Climatically, it's, this is still part of a, a relatively warm Earth. This is a period of greenhouse Earth. And the Cretaceous is, is a, was a very sort of diverse place filled with wonderful, enormous creatures, and including all of those dinosaurs. And then when the um, meteor struck, the, we know exactly where it hit. It hit uh, what is just now off the coast of the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico, near a place called uh, Chicxulub. And so we call it the uh, Chicxulub impact. And it happened to strike some carbon buried in the seafloor, an oil field, which meant that all of that oil soot um, flew up into the atmosphere and darkened the skies. Uh, and uh, photosynthesis seems to have completely ceased for a, a time period which had been on the order of at least two years. And what this means, of course, is that plants can't grow during that time and the source of food for any large herbivore is just insufficient and so they die and that means that the source of food for large carnivores is insufficient and so they die and so the, the organisms that survive the uh, in Cretaceous mass extinction I mean there's nothing that's um, bigger than a you know the, the size of a badger that makes it through at least on land I mean in, in the sea that it's a slightly different story but what you get immediately in the aftermath of this catastrophic event, which is, of all the mass extinctions, the most sudden, right? This is something that happened in a matter of, um, you know, it's, it's a single moment which then uh, has implications which then sort of accrue over a couple of years. But compared with a lot of the other mass extinction events where we're looking at periods of over sort of 10,000 years while things sort of are just pushed out of extinction, uh, out to extinction. The uh, Encretaceous mass extinction is is just such this a major event, and one of the events that happens is the heat pulse from the um, from the impact itself is uh, alleged by many scientists to have um, burnt forests worldwide. I mean, we get a big spike in charcoal in the record as far away as New Zealand from from this impact, uh, and so the, the the first plants that really recover from this are some of the big the great pioneers of of all plants and ecosystems, which are ferns. And so immediately above the impact layer, we see uh, this layer of spores, uh, of fern spores, and we see this all around the world where we can find the, the boundary between the Cretaceous and the Paleocene as the ferns kind of take over. And then eventually uh, ecosystems do recover. I mean, plants are quite resilient and able to leave their seeds in the ground for a long time until the conditions are good to that they begin to grow and uh, some animals manage to survive and exactly how they did that 
is it's sort of, I guess, a little different depending on the case, but there are certain traits that help you to survive. And some of those are being small because it means that you don't need uh, to have so much food immediately. It means that you can reproduce quickly while, while uh, times are good. And then you, know, you sort of spread the, the, the risk among several uh, descendants. Uh, burrowing is a great adaptation to uh, to avoid uh, wildly fluctuating climates and temperatures um, in what was effectively a nuclear winter. <laughs> you know, there there are various adaptations that help survive, and and of course the best adaptation of all is just um, it's not an adaptation at all. It's just being common in the first place, which makes you sort of more resilient to being sort of extirpated in this way. <laughs> Each chapter is accompanied by both a map of what what the continents you know looked like at that time, and then also a drawing of a particular creature, organism, or scene. And I found these drawings totally captivating. Will you describe, for example, what what the drawing is in, in the Hell Creek chapter, thirty thousand years after the last dinosaurs walked the land, and and this the survivors of, of this uh, mass extinction event are finding new ways to, to live. How did you pick these particular creatures? What are the creatures and how did you pick them? And what was the process like of working with the artist to create drawings to show, you know, what these clues indicate about, about who these animals were? Yeah, the, well, I mean, the first thing to say is that the, the artist is Beth Zyken, who's um, uh, an absolutely incredible museum muralist, mostly. She does a lot of artwork for for, for displays in museums, but her, her standalone um, drawings are just fantastic. And they are sort of drawn very much with a naturalist's eye. Um, the animal for Hell Creek is uh, an animal called um, Biaconodon, which is one of these uh, mammals which is part of the initial radiation of, of mammals after the Cretaceous mass extinction. So it's a member of one of these other groups where we give it an, a name that just so that we can speak about it as scientists, but fitting them together in a, in a tree of life sense is, is really tricky. It's a condylarth in inverted commas. And uh, specifically, it's it's a sort of condylarth called an arctocyonid, and these are sort of broadly omnivorous animals. It's about the uh, biaconodon in the, in the picture that is drawn is a a mother biaconodon of two uh, young kits or cubs or something. I I talk in the book about how it's quite difficult to to use modern terms when we're essentially discussing organisms that are potentially ancestral or at least close relatives of the ancestors of so many modern groups. Condyloths are associated with the origin of the modern hoofed mammals from deer to giraffes to whales, um, but also bats and cats and seals and all sorts of things. In its life, Biaconodon would resemble, I think the closest modern organism I can think of is something like a fusso, which is this kind of a Madagascan carnivorous animal. It looks a bit like, um, it's kind of got the feet of, a, of something like a wolverine, right? So it's walking on, the, on its full palms and its full feet rather than on its toes, like things like dogs and cats do. And it's sort of uh, almost, I guess, like a platonic ideal of mammalness. When you look at the skull of a, of a biaconodon and, and look at the reconstruction that, that Beth has done so wonderfully, uh, it's kind of difficult to think exactly where it might fit in, in, in terms of relationships. And so I really like how she's captured that kind of non-specific nature of, <laughs> of uh, these animals. 
Um, and the reason that um, I wanted it to be reconstructed with two of its offspring uh, is twofold, because firstly, is a scene you don't often see when you think about paleo art. So most of the time when you see an organism, it's quite often roaring to sort of demonstrate what the teeth look like, you know, or, or hunting something or, you know, you don't often see sort of parental behavior. But secondly, because they sort of sit at this sort of last common ancestor position in the tree of life, you know, or close to the last common ancestor. I wanted to sort of imply something about different lineages diverging off. But yeah, it's uh, the, the organisms throughout the book, there's, uh, there's one illustration for, for each chapter. They're all extremely beautiful and, and have something to do with the, with the theme of the chapter, whether that's, uh, well, I mean, the, the, the next chapter, I don't know if we're going to go on to talk about it, but the chapter that comes after the Paleocene one, we move into the time of the dinosaurs. And rather than have a dinosaur picture, uh, I wanted to do something a bit different. And I've got a, an image of a lacewing, a calligrammatid lacewing, which is called Orogramma. And it's an incredible specimen because you don't just have the shape of the organism, but you can actually see some of the patterns on its wings and see this sort of eye spot coloration. Uh, just as you might see in a butterfly today. And eye spots are a sort of classic signal, a startle signal towards potential predators. And that whole chapter is is based around how organisms communicate with each other or try to hide from one another. Not to give us too much whiplash, um, moving sort of back, <laughs> back forward a little bit, but you had mentioned the, the rise of the, the ferns following and the, the, the spores in their record. And the book is full of anecdotes um, and incredible descriptions of the interplay between plant and animal evolution um, from the rise of the grasslands for the first time to the emergence of, of flowering plants. One of the most striking ones you talk about is on the, the chapter on, on the grasslands in East Africa about 4 million years ago, where the early humans, the Australopithecus, also lived. You described the innovation of the rise of C4 plants as this industrial revolution that also really transformed herbivore behavior. What was this new plant technology and how did it affect how animals consume them? So there, there are different ways of photosynthesizing. Photosynthesis as a, as a basic equation is bringing in carbon dioxide and water and expelling oxygen and creating uh, sugar, which you can then use to make energy. But that means that the plant has to access both carbon dioxide and water. And if you live in a very arid place, especially one that is hot, then in order to access the carbon dioxide, you have to open the stomata, which are the little holes in the leaves. But by opening the stomata, you leak out water. And so you get this balance between, you know, the efficiency of obtaining one resource you need without, you know, dropping the rest. And so what C4 does is it uh, moves the different parts of the photosynthetic equation, because it's not actually a simple reaction of carbon dioxide and water being converted into um, sugar and oxygen. There are lots of steps that happen in between that are mediated by a series of proteins. And so what uh, the C4 plants do is that they take the step that actually adds in the water and keep that happening in a, in a separate place uh, within the cell of the plant, so, so that it's, no, it's not in contact with or not exposed to the stomata being open and uh, allowing the water to leak out. 
So they're effectively taking like a production line of the, the place where you bring in the carbon dioxide and you then move, shift everything into the, the center of the cell, uh, so converting the carbon dioxide into, in, into a, a, a molecule with four carbon atoms, which is where the um, C4 name comes from, as it sort of moves into an, another part of the plant cell, the reaction continues, and then eventually the oxygen is released back out, all without exposing the water to the, the stomata so much. And it also has the um, advantage of concentrating all of this carbon dioxide around uh, the key enzyme, which is called Rubisco. And Rubisco is, I think uh, it's been said to be the most abundant protein on Earth. It's the way that all photosynthesis in all plants and cyanobacteria is mediated. And it's actually an extremely inefficient enzyme. I mean, it does such an important job, but it's um, not very effective at doing it. And so by concentrating the carbon dioxide around it, you make that um, uh, reaction a whole lot more uh, efficient. And that means that you don't have to even open the stomata for as long in order to get as much the carbon dioxide you need to produce sugars. And some other plants do a similar thing, which is known as CAM, uh, where they, instead of separating it in space, separate it in time. So they'll... Um, they'll only open the stomata at night when it's cooler, so there's less risk of losing water. But uh, the plants that tend to do this C4 photosynthesis, it's evolved a few times independently, but the, the, the group that sort of really made it its own are, are, are the grasses. And so herbivores uh, tend to either be browsing animals, which is that they're sort of eating the soft leaves of trees or things like sedges and other forbs or they're grazing animals and they're eating primarily things like grass which are a bit more abrasive on the teeth and and, and require uh you know they they are sort of less nutrient intense and they require a slightly different digestive system to efficiently deal with it and so you can identify the proportion of c3 and c4 uh, in the diet of uh, of organisms by looking at uh, the isotopes because of the ways that uh, the isotopes in water, I think, because of the ways that they concentrate the water. Yeah, but uh, it's a, it's it's a sort of general dichotomy between herbivorous mammals, at least that that you're sort of either a browser or a grazer, and there are a few generalists as well. Um, things like deer can adapt their stomach lining even in their own lifetimes to kind of do both, which is very bizarre. So ten million years ago. The proportion of C4 plants around the world was about 1%, but today uh, C4 plants make up 50% of uh, primary productivity, right? So it's it's a real sort of rise of a new way of doing things uh, for photosynthesis. And it's one which is particularly well adapted to the climate that we have now and have had since sort of moving into an ice house world. The past worlds that you paint in this book are filled with echoes of today's world that are both immediately recognizable and wildly alien all at the same time. One example of this that I found truly spectacular was the glass sponge reefs in Europe during the Jurassic period 155 million years ago. At the time, you describe Europe as an unrecognizable array of islands. The islands were full of dinosaurs, and there was a glass sponge reef weaving its way in between these islands beneath the waves for thousands of miles. This is the topic of one of your many really beautiful chapters. You write, and I quote, Not far away from the frenzied activity at the surface is a world of calm, a shimmering crystal structure in the deep dark sea below. 
High-piled tubes, icy like frozen lace, are stacked tens of meters high, each a brilliant white net of woven glass strands. Built on top of one another, some are nobbled like melting candles, a devotional altar that disappears into the blue-black haze in all directions. Although they are fixed in place, these are animals, growing on skeletons of their predecessors. End quote. Will you please tell us about these reefs and what Europe was like at this time, 155 million years ago? Well, the, the closest uh, analogous ecosystem around today is really the Caribbean, right? So it's a mm. tropical archipelago with um, you know, sand that's made up of these of sort of limestone and of shell fragments and so on. So yeah, white sands, sort of hot temperatures. Um, and it's a, it's a meeting place uh, of three oceans, really. So you've got a passage up past uh, what is now Great Britain and Scandinavia into the, the cold boreal sea, um, and a passage east on what's uh, called the Tethys Sea, which is kind of the precursor to the, to the Mediterranean and I guess parts of the Indian Ocean as well. And uh, then this little passage, which is just beginning to open up between Africa and North America, which is the, the, the sort of nascent Atlantic uh, passage. And what is now Europe is at this time a sort of series of islands, which you, know, you can map onto modern day Europe so we, you know, and give the islands names. So we talk about the island of London Brabant, which sort of goes between uh, the southeast of uh, England over into sort of Netherlands and northwest Germany kind of area. You've got um, an island in what is now Bohemia. You've got an island that's sort of near the Massif Central in France and so on. You know, all of these, all of these little islands, some of which are just tiny atolls. And around them, in these shallow uh, continental shelf uh, seas, uh, you get uh, reefs, but they're not the coral reefs that we're familiar with today. Uh, they are made up of uh, hexactinellid uh, glass sponges. So glass sponges, and sponges in general, they're, uh, they, they don't have a skeleton as such, but they have hard crystals within them known as spicules. And glass sponges, uh, these spicules are, uh, are made uh, entirely really of, uh, of silica and um, they can reach enormous sizes right? I think the largest spicule uh, on record is several feet long I mean they, they can form sort of star shapes or be relatively rod-like there's all sorts of different potential morphologies for them but the in, in the Jurassic they aggregated together and formed these reefs uh, and it's uh, such an extensive reef system that we're it was of about 4,000 kilometers long in total, so it's you know, considerably longer than the Great Barrier Reef is today. And is if, if you take all of these environments uh, together, so whether they were entirely contiguous or not is one question, but uh, it's you know, the largest biological structure that has ever existed, and uh, was home to uh, a lot of the you know really iconic animals of that time, from you know ammonites and and belemnites, the sort of mollusk creatures, to uh, to giant marine reptiles. It's a yeah a very sort of diverse period in Earth history, and 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 one which is sort of the the first of the um, extinct worlds to have been identified in in modern times. Right, we really began to understand that creatures could go extinct, and that there were you know, such a diversity of life in the past. Um, thanks to people like Mary Anning and her discoveries in Lyme Regis and um, some of the uh, German discoveries in, in, in the high uh, Jura of, uh, of, uh, of southern Germany and, and, and Switzerland. 
you talk um, in one of your last chapters about how early arthropods and early vertebrates were more closely related than kangaroos and animals today, despite looking quite different um, and, and setting the stage for the body plans of all the animals that came after. There's You mentioned two theories of, of why that's the case. Can you talk about this phenomenon and, and what the theories behind it are? Okay, so I'm sure that some people listening are going to get very cross with me suggesting that um, <laughs> early arthropods and early vertebrates are more closely related than yeah, kangaroos and, and, and placental mammals. Um, the the justification for that, I'm, what I'm trying to do is illustrate the, um, uh, the timescales uh, involved here. And that in terms of number of generations, which is ultimately the, the point at which mutations occur and the point at which, uh, at least in sexual organisms, uh, you get this sort of, you know, the shuffling and the, the, the changes in population structure and uh, the gene pool. In terms of number of generations, there are fewer generations that, um, have, that existed between these earliest creatures that we call chordates, the sort of progenitors of vertebrates, and the early arthropods than there are between some, some organisms that today we would consider to be you know, very, very similar. And so the idea of what constitutes a different phylum is to some extent a question of the timescale at which you choose to look. And from the perspective of the Cambrian, maybe they are more similar than, um, than we like to think. But the question then remains, you know, why is it that in the Cambrian explosion, so-called, we get the origin of brand new phyla and we haven't since? So one argument is that it is just this question of scale. And where we to were we to you know continue the evolutionary lines that exist today then perhaps eventually 500 million years in our future we would look back and see the origins of whole new phyla but there are arguments against this an alternative explanation is that um you sort of set the rules of what an organism can be in terms of its structure very early on so if you try and break the bilateral symmetry of a human embryo, then you are not going to get a viable infant at the end of it, right? It just results in so many more developmental issues that compound and compound that it's ultimately fatal. Whereas in these early days, we see sort of relative experiments with, with symmetry, right? From even down to things like starfish, which are you know, more closely related to us than they are to um, mollusks or to, to insects, they have this five-way symmetrical um, structure, this, uh, this pentameral symmetry, and um, whereas we are bilaterally symmetrical. So we get... So it, it's... Do we set the rules, the basic rules early on, and then evolution tinkers ever more finely with what those uh, what the developmental processes can do and and of course of sometimes come across a way of breaking those rules so that you know in a, in a way that's viable but it's considerably rarer uh, than the, the more minor tinkering and the sort of alternative to that so that's kind of the intrinsic explanation for maybe why we haven't seen the origin of new phyla over the last 500 million years so since the Cambrian explosion. And then there's this extrinsic explanation, which is more ecological, which suggests that 
it's it's a lot harder for um, organisms to come along and start uh, doing things in a way that is already established by other organisms. And so you kind of get this, uh, they're already occupying a position in, in, in the way that life operates. And so if life were to, to originate separately um, today, it would just be outcompeted by everything else. And so to some extent, there's you know, a similar thing going on with um, the occupancy of different phyla. But it's a, it's a big question. And the idea that the Cambrian explosion is, you know, a, an extremely rapid explosion is one that is actually really debated today. And some people think that it's more of a sort of general emergence over a far longer period. And that actually the most important thing in the Cambrian explosion is an increase in, in preservability as organisms evolve hard tissues in response to an onset of, of predatory behavior. Mm -hmm. This book is about the history of life, but in both the framing and in the first chapter and in your conclusion, you talk about how the history of life tells us much about who we are and, and also potentially the future. You describe the fossil record beautifully as both a memorial and a warning. What lessons do you hope that readers will heed from this book? And what perspective do you hope that readers will, will take away in our current moment in history? I think the, I mean, those, those are, I guess, very, very related ideas because it's the, it's the perspective that gives that warning, right? Mm -hmm. We as humans are fundamental parts of many of the ecosystems that today you know it's it, the, I, I want to say straight off that I don't want to be misanthropic about this and suggest that we're you know separate from nature there are several points within human history where you know we have been modified well we've been modifying the environment for tens of thousands of years from you know the pre-Columbian cultivation of the Amazon rainforest to the development of clam gardens to um, you know wildflower meadows in Europe a lot of these places are diverse because of human activity and the problem is less to do with the presence of humans than exactly what we are currently doing to these places. From the perspective of the past what we can see is that although this is our world and we are very tightly connected to it worlds can vanish in an instant and Although the patterns of life remain the same, an individual ecosystem can be incredibly fragile. The largest ecosystem on the planet 20,000 years ago was the Mammoth Steppe, this grassland that stretched from Ireland and Portugal on one end to um, all the way through uh, Eurasia to um, the Yukon in Canada. And that ecosystem is more or less gone. There are a couple of small fragments of it that exist in Mongolia, but without the large herbivores and you know a lot of the like the animals that that uh, make it a sort of full mammoth step. And that's gone over the course of you know really a blink of an eye geologically. All of the all of the worlds that we visit over the course of this book are no longer here, and and we could sit and mourn that and think that it's you know a terrible shame that we won't get to see some of the amazing Triassic reptiles or any of the you know, incredible sort of organisms of Ordovician Sea. But I don't think that's the right approach. I think we need to recognise that the world that we have is, it's the world that is now. There are wonderful and amazing creatures, amazing plants out there. But it is perhaps more fragile than we care to realise. And therefore, we shouldn't throw it away by changing the climate to, you know, a climate that existed at a time when Antarctica was a temperate rainforest. <laughs>
Well, and I, uh, I heard I heard your children in the background there. So hearing future generations. Yes, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh no, 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 I was saying it was a very appropriate time for them to be making a guest appearance as we're talking about what the future looks like, and certainly nothing more, mm-hmm. nothing, nothing more compelling than that. Well, I know we're we're almost at the the top of the hour, um, but just as one final question, we we like to ask our our guests is whether you have any works, whether books or art or films that have been really inspiring for you in, in your life and work? Oh, um, so I think the the book that most directly influenced uh, Otherlands is probably um, actually a book with quite a similar title, Underland by mm-hmm. uh, Robert McFarlane. Mm-hmm which you may or may not be familiar with. He's, um, he's a, an English professor um, at the University of Cambridge. He's sort of the, I guess, the current king of nature writing in, mm-hmm. in the UK. <laughs> and Underland is a, an exploration of what uh, subterranean worlds mean in, in various contexts, from you know, karstic caves to the sewer systems in Paris and so on. And it's just, it's a fantastic book. But also... A, a book which has been, I guess, a surprising influence on me is, is a book that was actually written in the in, in the 14th century by a Moroccan, or, or you know what is now Morocco, but a, a, um, an Islamic legal scholar called um, Ibn Battuta, and it's, it chronicles his journey around the world. So he set off in in his early 20s on the Hajj, on the pilgrimage to to Mecca, and um, he didn't come back for a couple of decades. And travelled as widely as you know. He travelled with with a Mongol um, nomadic procession, and and all the way into China. And he travelled as far south as what is now Mozambique. And he lived on the Maldives for a while. And he just moved around the world and described it as he saw it. So it's a it's a travel diary of human communities that don't exist and yet sort of feel so modern right he gets fobbed off as with tourist prices when he's in what is now istanbul and he you know he he has to deal with the bureaucracy of crossing the border into the mughal empire and it's it's just it feels so familiar and yet is just completely different from from the world today so i think i, I think i was trying to get some of what i feel when i read that book uh, into other lands well, Dr. Thomas Halliday, thank you so very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, too, to Ryan McAvoy, the Yale Broadcast Studio, and Daniel Block for their work on this episode. When We Talk About Animals is supported by the Law, Ethics, and Animals program at Yale Law School. We would love it if you would subscribe to When We Talk About Animals on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, write us a review, and check out our website, whenwetalkaboutanimals.org where you can find out more about Dr. Thomas Halliday and his work. Thanks for listening.